sometime last fall, we lost all of our chickens to raccoons. Raccoons came in and murdered all of our chickens. And so uh, if you see a raccoon, feel free to swerve for it on the, on the road. But, um, but if you've been around for a while, you know um, that the, our, our chicken run wasn't exactly, you know, stout, I would say. So, so the reason we lost the chickens is because of the run. Now, over, you know, I, when I first built it, you know, it was okay, but I used chicken wire, and if you, if you know anything about chicken wire, you know not to use chicken wire when you're raising chickens. It seems like you would, but you don't because it's cheap and it doesn't last long. And it might keep the chickens in, but it's going to have a hard time keeping the predators out, which is the more important thing when it comes to uh, putting fencing up around chickens. But, you know, we had a tarp over it when we first built it. We put a tarp over it for the roof, and then that, that only lasted about a year and a half, so we had to put another tarp over it. And I don't know if you've, if you've been out to the farm, you, you saw we had old banners from the church because the tarp wasn't quite wide enough. So I had old banners that kind of, you know, fixed, filled the gap between where the tarp ended and the edge of the run to try to seal it off to keep predators out. And, but the thing with tarps is um, you have to have a lot of underlying structure, otherwise they're completely useless because they, they end up working really well to collect hundreds of gallons of water, you know, at, at a time. And then once they do that, they stretch and they burst and they just become useless. And then once they get stretched out, then you have a wind that comes along and the wind is blowing the tarp up and it becomes a great big sail and, and it gets torn to shreds. And then you have opportunity for, for predators to come in. But, you know, I built it, you know, several years ago when we first moved up there. And then every, every so often I'd have to kind of go around and patch some of the problems in it, right? I, I didn't build it well the first time. And because I didn't build it well the first time, then I was constantly having to go back and fix the problems. It was an ongoing work that I was having to do. It was never a finished product, right? It was never a finished run because there was always a problem with it. And then, then uh, we moved the cows down there. My uncle moved the cows down there, and the cows would kind of come, and they, they exposed even more of the weaknesses of the, fe- of the fence around trying to keep the chickens in. And so I had to go and do more things and tie logs onto the bottom to try to keep the cows from destroying the fence. And, and it was just this ongoing effort that never seemed finished because it was just such a poor structure in the first place. And, and it was, it was, if you looked at it from the beginning, you would realize it was by the way I designed it. You know, it was my first time ever doing it, and I didn't know if we were going to do chickens for the long run. So I'm just going to do it as cheap as I could and see if the chickens last. And they ended up lasting, and then I wished I would have built a better run. And, but, but, you know, just you kind of do it cheap. You don't do it the, the whole perfect way the first time around, and you learn from your mistakes, and then you do something better. But now, the last few weeks, I've got a picture here I'd like to show you. If we can get Kyle to stop talking to Stefan and put the picture up on the screen. That would be great. There we go. So um, the last few weeks I've been working on a new run. So uh, this, this is not the nicest run in this church. I won't, I won't expose the identity of the person with the nicest run, but uh, they can talk to you after the service if they want. But um, the coop, it used to, so we let the cows down there and, uh, and the roof of the coop, the part out in the front that's got the red roof, it used to have the really cheap asphalt like that you roll out in a roll and well, the cows like to eat that apparently and so they ate some of that off and so we put a new roof on and the part that's down here on the end with the white siding, 
that it was all chicken wire, and so I, I closed that all in with actual siding, so it's, it's impossible now to get into the coop unless, unless we leave the door open. Though it's not quite finished, but, but now you see the run all the way on the outside. Uh, it's got wire around it, and I still have two sides to finish up later, but it's, it'll, be, it'll be much more secure, and the great thing about it is once it's done, it's pretty much done, right? I mean, I'm not gonna have to keep going back and back and back and back and fixing little things here. I mean, there might be something that kind of crops up and I'll find some, some flaw and something that I didn't do or design perfectly or whatever. But, but for the most part, once it's built, it's built. And I can just let the chickens out there. We can just let the chickens out there and we don't have to worry about it for the long haul, right? The chickens will be safe as long as we do our job and keeping the chickens safe and keeping the doors shut, right? And I know that was what you were hoping for this morning was a lesson on chickens when you came to church, but it will all make sense here in a little bit. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. Then, this is in the context of last week's story, so you'll remember the the whole last half of Matthew chapter 5 is all in the same setting. It's all in the same place. And so, you know, so, so Jesus heals the paralytic that's lowered through the roof, and then he comes out and sees Levi there sitting at a tax collector booth, This is all the same story, and then Levi stands up and follows him after Jesus says, follow me, and then later that evening, they throw a big banquet. Levi throws a big banquet for Jesus and has all of his tax collectors and and sinner friends come over and hang out with Jesus, and the Pharisees see that there, and then we get this. This is all the same story, the same dialogue, same part of what's going on in those last two weeks we've covered, verse 33, then... They, the Pharisees, said to Jesus, John's disciples frequently fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours continue to eat and drink. So Jesus said to them, you cannot make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? It's a rhetorical question. The answer to that is no. But those days are coming, and when the bridegroom is taken from them, at that time they will fast. He also told them a parable. And when you hear parable, we often think of the stories, the illustrative stories that Jesus told. But the word parable was just, it's a Greek uh, uh, or a teaching device that, that could go anywhere from a story, an illustrative story, to a simple proverb. And so these are more on the simple proverbs uh, side of the parables. But he, he said to them a parable, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. If he does, he will have torn the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine must be poured into new wineskins No one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is good enough. So here Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and sinners, right? He's in this big feast, this big party that Levi has thrown in Jesus' honor because Jesus saw Levi and called him to follow him when he was sitting at his tax collector booth. And so Levi, because he, he felt and received the honor of being called, he responded by throwing Jesus this big banquet to to return the honor because that was how the culture worked in that time. It was an honor culture. They showed honor for honor 
when you received honor, you matched that honor in return. That was how the culture worked. And so, so Levi is showing Jesus this honor, and, and, and Jesus is there. But the Pharisees, having been at, at the healing of the paralytic, see what's going on, and they're, they're trying to figure out why Jesus, this, this teacher, who, who obviously has a great following at this time, they're, they're starting to pick at him for, for some of the problems that he's causing with their own people, probably, maybe even losing their own followers for people who are interested in what's going on in Jesus' ministry, and they're having problems with what Jesus is doing, and so they're starting to ask questions but they're not really questions for understanding, they're questions for condemning. We do that, don't we? You know, we, we might ask someone questions, but we're not really trying to gain a better understanding. We're really just trying to poke at people. We're just, we're just trying to dig at people. And because we're not really confrontational by nature, it's easier to ask a question than it is to confront. And I think that's what we see happening here. The Pharisees are confronting Jesus because they think he's all wrong and they're doing it in the form of questions. The problem is that Jesus is not doing things like the Pharisees were doing things. The Pharisees had a traditionalist way of doing things. They, they, they had a prescribed way that they did things that they had received from their teachers, that they had received from the people who taught them, and they had received from the people who taught them. They, they had a traditional approach to how they did things, and Jesus comes along, and he's not doing anything like they were used to doing it. And so he's, they're asking questions, why are you doing things totally different? So they ask this question, why don't your disciples fast? Well, the disciples of a teacher, of a rabbi, would be the responsibility of the teacher. So their behavior, the way they acted, would be the responsibility of the teacher. And the way they acted was then a direct reflection on on the teacher. And so these disciples, the ones that that were following Jesus, were a a direct reflection on Jesus and his, you know, his reputation would be partly based on the behavior of his disciples. But they asked, why don't your disciples fast? Now, fasting, we could spend a lot of time, we probably should down the road spend a lot of time talking about fasting. The law, the Old Testament law, only required fasting on the Day of Atonement. That was the only law, uh, the, the only re- required by the law part of fasting. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the, the, the priests, had, you know, they, they had probably added other fasts over the years. And you do something once, and then people participate in it, and then it kind of becomes a tradition. And then over the years, if you don't do that thing, then it becomes a sin not to do it, even though it wasn't a part of the law. And that had taken place with a lot of the fasts, where rabbis would have their own fast, or sometimes rabbis, to, to establish their own you know, realm of teaching, their own followers, would kind of create their own fasts. And then that would get passed on to their followers. And so they're asking, hey, why don't you observe any of the fasts that we do as, rab- as rabbis, as teachers? Why aren't you doing any of these fasts? Or, or, or why aren't your disciples doing any fasting at all? But instead of, instead of fasting, here we see them sitting in front of their rabbi carousing with sinners and tax collectors. That's reflecting on you, Jesus. Look at, look at how bad you look because of the way your disciples are acting. Well, 
Well, what is fasting? I want to talk about it just for a minute and, and gain a little bit of understanding because I want to clarify it just as in a brief way as we, as we can this morning. Fasting is giving up food for a period of time for the purpose of devoting yourself to seeking God. That's the, that's the definition of a fast. It's giving up food for a period of time for the purpose of devoting yourself to seeking God. You may have, at least I, I experienced this growing up in the Midwest, on Fridays at school, the only meat you could get would be fish. Anyone remember that Fridays? You got, it was fish Friday? Was that that way anywhere out here? I don't know if that was that way here, but you only got fish on Fridays. Well, that, that was kind of a, a, uh, the, a turning down, a passing down of fasting where, where uh, Catholicism, they would fast on Fridays. And then that kind of turned into, you know, well, uh, we can't just go without food every Friday, so we can't, well, we're just going to fast meat, and well, uh, so there has to be some kind of meat that's acceptable that we can eat on Friday, so we'll have fish. Fish is okay to eat on Fridays, and so you realize that they kind of gave up the whole point of fasting on Friday. It was just lost by the time it got to the point where you're having fish be your only choice for food in public schools, right? It's kind of lost all its meaning at that point in time. The fasting is giving up food for a period of time for the purpose of devoting yourself to God and to seeking God. A deeper understanding, though, of fasting is that it's denying what our flesh wants so we can focus on strengthening our spirit. Your flesh, if you don't know this, your body is wanting a lot of things all the time, right? And you know, many of you probably by the time I finish up a sermon, your, your body is telling you it's time for lunch, right? So it's time to eat. Your body, your body has wants and even needs and desires and, and it'll constantly remind you and it's interesting how when you get hangry, it can totally change everything about your life, right? It can change the way you think. It can change the way you feel. It can change the way you act. It can change the way you make decisions, right? I mean, you, you realize that you can go a day without eating, but you know, it gets to about 11.30 on a Sunday morning and we start getting hangry and we start thinking, man, if I don't get some food, then I'm gonna die. Well, truth is we're not gonna die. We are just allowing our flesh to control and manipulate our mind and our feelings and our desires. This is where fasting is a good thing. Fasting is good because it's good to strengthen your spirit over your flesh. And I think that's where maybe a lot of, a lot of Christians in our world today are weak because we've never strengthened our spirit over our flesh. Our flesh controls us and when our flesh wants something, we give in to the flesh instead of learning to strengthen our spirit to defeat the flesh. I think that's what one of the great things that fasting accomplishes. When you're fasting and you're seeking God and you're devoting yourself to God and you're denying what your flesh wants so that you can focus on strengthening your spirit and your relationship with God, you become a more mature believer. So if you ask, should we fast today? Absolutely, we should fast today. We should probably do it more than we do and we should talk about it more than we do. And I know everyone in here is worried right now. All right, pastor's going to institute a new fast. I'm not going to institute a new fast. I'm not going to be a Pharisee. But someday I might say we should fast about this or that or for this period of time. But we should fast today. But we should do it for the right reasons. We should not fast for attention. We should not fast 
because of religious reasons. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but we shouldn't do it for the attention we receive from fasting. In fact, Jesus, when he talks about fasting, he says, you shouldn't make it obvious that you're fasting. Instead, you should make yourself look as best as you possibly can. So he says, wash your face and put on oil and make sure that you are presentable. You know, make sure that you look as best you can that, so, that, so that people don't know that you're fasting because that's not the point. The point isn't the attention you get from fasting. The point with fasting is the focus. The point with fasting is the focus. When we fast, our focus should not be on what we're not getting. And I'm going to poke a little fun here. Don't take it personally. But uh, I myself have done this, and I don't know others here at the church have done this, and maybe you've done this, and I'm not, I'm not poking at you personally, but I just want to use it as an illustration. Sometimes we'll do Facebook fasts, right? Or social media fasts, or, you know, whatever kind of... Whatever kind of thing, you know, some people will fast TV or TV shows, right? You know, I'm not, I'm not going to binge a series on Netflix during the month leading up to Easter. So for Lent, we're giving up binge watching, you know. So, so that's the kind of, kind of thing that we, that we do. But, but typically, what ends up happening in those things is, you know, at best, we've just kind of cut something out of our life that we didn't really need in the first place. Oftentimes, though we kind of become consumed with what we're not getting. Oh, I'm missing out on this or that, or you know, we're, 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 you know our FOMO, or fear of missing out. You know, just fear of missing out on everything that's going on in everybody's life. I'm gonna get back into the real world here after Easter, and I'm not gonna know anything that's happened. And our focus becomes on what we're not getting. Or when we're fasting food, when we're not eating, right, then our focus can easily become, because you're hungry, because your body is reminding you that you need food to survive, your focus can easily become on, I am not getting to eat steak right now. Man, man, I would love a pizza, right? When we fast, it's easy for our focus to become on what we're not getting. But that's not the point. The point is focusing on God. When we fast, our focus should be on God. The point with fasting is the focus. If, if when you're fasting, and I would, I would honestly say this, if when you're fasting, you find it impossible to focus on God because you are consumed with, with not getting to eat, then eat something. I know it sounds ridiculous. But if not getting to eat, and you've been fasting, and you're trying to focus on God, has, has become such a huge thing Go eat some food. It's not a sin to eat food, right? Go, go eat some food and then focus on God. The point is with the focus. Although I would also say, you're probably a lot closer than you think to being able to get over that hunger. I'm not going to get into, you know, how, how your body works in depth, but, but you know, your stomach growls, right? This, this, I know we're getting real practical this morning, just real hands-on, but your stomach growls, but the way God designed our bodies is that you'll have that, that feeling of hunger and your stomach will growl, and once your stomach growls, you'll be fine for another half hour, 45 minutes, because your body will pull what it needs from your body, because we have fat stored up, and if you're like me, you have plenty of it in reserve, so, so you know you're going to be good for a while. So if you can get through just a little bit more, you're probably going to feel good in a few minutes. 
So I'd say if you're feeling really hungry, you might be just about to the point where you should be. That would be a great reminder to focus and pray and seek God, which is, I think, the point of fasting. When we feel hungry, we focus on God. When we feel hungry, we turn that hunger in our physical body to a spiritual hunger to seek God. So when we're giving up something like Facebook, we have to ask the question, why are you giving up that thing? If we just give up Facebook or if we just give up binge watching or we just give up you know, really menial things in our lives, there might be some benefit in it if we are taking that time that we would have spent wasted on Facebook and binge watching and focusing on God in the same amount of time. So if you spend an hour a day scrolling through your Facebook feed, if you give up Facebook and you take that hour and you spend that focusing on God, then, then I would say that's a good thing to do. But if you take that, 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 that hour and you just do something else you want to do with that time, if you're just having you know, a good old time with the time that you would have wasted on Facebook, that's not really fasting. Don't call it a fast. You, know, you can just say you've given up Facebook and, and go do whatever you want with your life. But, but if we're going to call it fasting, then I think we need to make sure that we're seeking God with the time that we would have spent doing that thing. So the question is, why are you giving up this thing or that thing? Is it to be closer to God, or is it to draw attention to yourself? Oftentimes, I think we do it for the attention. By the way, I think the same could be said about sin in our lives, that, that the problem is we end up focused on the sin, and even when we're trying not to sin or trying not to engage in that sin, we still focus on trying not to do this thing or that thing or not to go down this road or this mental path or this way of living or this habit or this routine that we've been on, and all of our focus and our energy is still on that thing. Instead of being focused on somebody's car horn going off, if, if, uh, if instead of being focused on the sin, we should be focused on God and focused on what we're getting instead of what we're giving up. Because a lot of times we focus on what we're losing instead of what we're gaining, and the truth is we're gaining so much more than what we're losing. So, there's fasting. We're going to move on. But what's the point of this? Why are the Pharisees bringing up fasting. Especially, it kind of seems out of the blue, doesn't it? It seems, it seems to kind of stand out. Why is there fasting going on right now? Why are they even asking this question? It seems out of place. And remember, this is all part of the same event, they, they, that Jesus just read their minds or read their hearts inside the house, and, and he heard how, how, how they were questioning him in their minds. And then he calls Levi, and Levi throws the feast, and and they're there probably sitting outside because they're too holy to go in and eat with tax collectors and sinners. And during this event, they see Jesus partake in something they wouldn't have been caught dead doing, so they ask him about fasting. What's the connection? What's the connection? Well, I think basically what's happening is that they're condemning Jesus by asking this question. They're trying to condemn him because he is eating with tax collectors and sinners, something they wouldn't be caught dead doing. And they're questioning him. They're condemning him. They're calling into legitimacy his ability to be a rabbi. And they're calling into question his approach to making disciples. Hey, we wouldn't do this, so why are you doing it? 
A real rabbi wouldn't eat and drink with sinners, and he, he certainly wouldn't have his disciples engage in such frivolity. A real rabbi would be teaching his disciples how to do all the requirements of the law. I think that's what's going on. The, the Pharisees are condemning Jesus. Now you're doing it wrong, Jesus. You got it all messed up. It's all backwards. Don't you understand what it means to be a rabbi? See, they're upset because Jesus is breaking the mold of what it means to be a rabbi. They, they had spent and devoted their entire lives to this process. They had worked and followed a rabbi for years so that they could become a rabbi and that they could teach people to be their disciples and they could have their own following. They had been doing this since they were young and they had devoted their, they literally gave up everything in their life so they could do this. And then along comes Jesus and he's doing everything wrong and he's putting in jeopardy their way of life. But here's something we need to learn, and that is that Jesus wasn't here to prop up the old system. Jesus didn't come to prop up the old. He came here to establish something new. Jesus was here to establish an entirely new system, a new way of doing things. And I think we have to ask ourselves 2,000 years later, are we trying to get God to prop up our old life and our old way of doing things? Because even if he was the Messiah, which when he used the, the, the idiom of the bridegroom, and he's talking about the bridegroom, that is a messianic reference. So, so he's referencing himself as the Messiah. Shouldn't the Messiah have come and, and propped up and validified and fixed all of the problems with the old system? But, but no, he comes and he is going to establish something entirely new. That's how Jesus works. He doesn't prop up the old. He institutes something new. And if you're asking Jesus into your life, if you're, if you're becoming one of his followers, that's exactly how he's going to operate in our lives. He, he's not going to come in and, and, and try, to, you know, try to patch and, and fix some of the holes that exist in who we are. He's going to come in and, and, and break everything apart and do something entirely new. And at first, especially if you're like the Pharisees, it's going to be offensive. You can see why they're responding this way, right? I mean, we can put ourselves in their shoes and say, I understand why they're acting this way. If we had spent our whole lives devoted towards something, and then Jesus comes along and he just blows the whole thing up, you would probably get defensive too. Be like, I mean, come on, Jesus. How dare you? And that's probably how we're going to feel in our lives when Jesus comes in and he wants to do a new thing in our lives and, and he's going to say, uh, you know what, the old way that you've been doing it, it's not going to work anymore, here's something new. And our first response is probably going to be, what are you talking about? Are you kidding me? What's wrong with that? Truth is, there might not really even be anything wrong with that, but... What he's got for us over here is so much better than that. If he doesn't get rid of that, he can't replace it with this good thing. And if we're going to be his followers, his disciples, we all 
have a choice that we're going to have to make. Are we going to let God do a new thing? Even if that means abandoning the old thing? Are we going to let God do something new in us, even if that means walking away from everything I've devoted my life up to until this point? You see, it's easy for us to to agree here in the moment, but when we get out there on Monday morning and we realize that what God is calling us to abandon is something that we've spent and invested massive amounts of time and energy and money into, it's going to become really hard. So when you get out there on Monday morning and God says, are you going to leave it behind and follow me, or are you going to keep picking it up? Are we going to do it? What if we've devoted our whole lives to something up until that point and Jesus says, no, you got to leave it behind. Will we follow? Jesus says, you, you cannot make the wedding, ga- wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But those days are coming when, when the bridegroom is taken from them. At that time, they will fast. The disciples would fast. There would be a time that would come when they would fast. When Jesus would leave, when he would ascend back into heaven and the disciples would be on earth not knowing what to do, we would see that they would fast. But, but when the bridegroom, when the promised one, when the Messiah is here, when, when the one that you've been waiting for for thousands of years is in your presence, when, when the thing that you're supposed to be focused on focusing on is there with you in visible, tangible form, you don't fast, you celebrate. You don't fast, you, you worship and enjoy the presence of the Almighty One, and that is what they were missing See, the Pharisees didn't trust what Jesus had to say about the law because he's not living the way that they thought he should. And so because they had their expectation and their framework of the way Jesus is supposed to show up and fit within this little box, and he wasn't fitting in the box of what they understood the Messiah to be, then they weren't going to trust anything that he said. They had limited God's eternal presence to a very ritualistic, religious understanding But when you're the one who wrote the law in the first place, when you're the one that that handed the law down to the people, when you are the one who is the perfect embodiment of that law, the, the perfect expression of what that law was supposed to look like, you know the real way it's supposed to be lived out. And because that is who Jesus was, he knew exactly how and who and what he could do while he was here on earth. In fact, Jesus talking, this illustration becomes a really good example for what he's talking about because it was common that you weren't allowed to fast or mourn for the seven day long wedding celebration. So the entire time you're celebrating the wedding and the entire time you were there celebrating with the bridegroom, you were actually forbidden from mourning and fasting. And Jesus is saying, hey, this is the time that we're supposed to celebrate because the bridegroom is here, and so we're not allowed to fast right now. We're not allowed to mourn right now. The time for that will come, but but right now we're celebrating. This is the season of celebration because the bridegroom is here. The bridegroom is here.
So Jesus then shares two parables to help illustrate the point that he's making. And we're going to see this whole chapter kind of come together here as he, as he teaches and he responds to these questions of the Pharisees. First one he says is, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. If he does, he will have torn the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. No one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is good enough. Let's dig into this and see if we can gain a little bit deeper understanding of what he's illustrating here with these two parables. First, let's look at the, at this, at the clothing. One of the, what was one of the primary materials that they used in this day for their clothing? It was wool, right? Sheep's wool. What happens when you wash wool for the first time? Yeah, and if you're not careful, you can end up turning your new sweater into something that only your kids will be able to wear, right? That's what happens if you wash wool the wrong way. If it isn't shrunk yet, if it hasn't been shrunk to the size it's going to stay, then it's going to continue to shrink over time. So Jesus is saying here, he's not here to patch up the old covenant. That's not going to solve the problem. He can bring the new covenant and try to fix the old covenant, but all that's going to happen is they're going to be destroyed in the process. You're, you're going to, he says, actually end up destroying the new because you're trying to attach it to the old. We, we will... We will we will defeat the new covenant by trying to put it, attach it to the old covenant. We will, we will suck all the life out of the new covenant if we try to attach it to the old. And then he goes into this, uh, to the parable of the wineskins. It says, And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. We don't have wineskins anymore. Maybe you have a wineskin that you use, but I've never seen one. But uh, we, we use bottles now for our wine. But, um, and they would have actually, they probably would have had some that used jars and pots and things like that for wine. But a wineskin was a pretty, pretty popular choice. They would take the skin of the animal. I'm not going to get into all the details. But they would take the skin of the animal, usually a goat or a sheep, and sew it together basically, make a bladder that they could pour the wine into. So it had one opening. And then when they poured the wine into it, they'd close it off and seal it off. And when you pour wine into new wineskins, as the wine ferments, it produces bubbles, right? It starts to produce a gas. And if you pour the new wine into new wineskins, well, the new wineskin can stretch. And so it stretches out as the wine produces these bubbles, and it can contain it. But then if you keep that wineskin for a second year and you take new wine, and you pour it into the old wine skin, when you pour it in there and seal it off, then it starts to produce the bubbles. Because the skin has already stretched the first year, when you fill it up and you, and you pour it in there, it's going to stretch and burst the second year. So he's saying you don't pour new wine into old wine skins because the old wine skin can't contain the new wine. 
It may seem like it can handle it, but over the process of time, it's going to burst. It's not going to hold up. It's used. That's the actual definition of the word old here. It's used. It's ancient. It's worn by use. It's worn out. It's used up. And the word new here means recently born. The new covenant, the new wine, the new wineskin, it's new. It's recently born. It is something that is coming to life right before their very eyes. It is brand new. So what was Jesus' point in all this? I think it's pretty clear Jesus is pointing out that he's doing something new. He's not going to come and patch up the old. He's not going to come and try to fix all the leaky spots on the old. He is bringing something entirely new. And the new thing that he was doing would not fit at all within the comfortable mold that the Pharisees knew. The new thing that he was bringing and instituting wouldn't be understood by the Pharisees because they were thinking within their God box and he was going to create a whole new concept of God and his relationship because he's establishing, he's beginning to establish his kingdom on earth. His his dwelling is now going to be in the hearts of people and even though that's not completely come to fruition until the end, he is starting to establish that now with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is doing something new. No longer would you have to go to the temple to be in God's presence. You would have God's presence living in you. This is something new. No longer would you have to work and perform rituals to be acceptable to God. You would receive the gift of God, and then as an expression of that faith in God, you would live out the commands of God because he's doing something new. The old was the old garment. This is something new. The old was the old wineskin. He's doing something new. And if you try to add the new thing that Jesus is doing to the old thing that already exists, you're just going to ruin both the new and the old. That's what Jesus is saying. You you can't just add me to what already existed. I need to do something new. The old cannot contain what I am trying to do. And this new covenant would not be like the old covenant. It wouldn't be based on rules and externally focused behaviors so that you could be perfectly kept on the outside, but your hearts on the inside could be covered with leprosy. You could be presentable, you could look like you're clean, but your hearts would be covered in leprous spots. What the old produced were people who were paralyzed by their own sin with no hope of escape because they had to keep offering sacrifices again and again and again and again because they kept sinning because it was imperfect. But Jesus is doing something new. He's doing something literally newborn. Jesus was doing something that would require a fresh start, a rebirth, putting to death the old and raising to life something new. It should start to sound familiar, right? We're putting to death the old life, and he's going to raise to life something new. That's what Jesus is explaining to the Pharisees. Hey, boys, you got it wrong. I know you think you're in the right, but, it, but it's, all, it's all messed up. Everything you're talking about, everything that you're pushing on the people, 
is all wrong. And I think it's easy for us to see that, right? When we look at the Pharisees, it's easy for, for us to look at the Pharisees and see, man, they just missed it. They missed everything. They missed the whole point all along the way. They, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the one they had been waiting for and teaching about and talking about for hundreds of years was literally standing right in front of them and they just missed it. But, but do we do the same thing? Do we do the same thing in our lives today? I mean, are we, are we like the Pharisees where God is coming into our life and, and he wants to do something new, but because we're stuck in the old, we don't see the new thing? And maybe for many of us, at best, what we try to do is we try to take the new thing of Jesus and cram it into our old way of doing life. And, well, it's just not going to work because the old can't contain the new that's why, that's why we hear in Scripture these metaphors and these ideas that you have to put the old to death. The old literally has to die so that the new can come to life, right? When you're talking about planting and, and planting, which is an illustration, a parable that Jesus uses for his own life and the life for all of his followers, is that you have to put the kernel of wheat into the ground and it has to die so that it can, it can produce new life. If it doesn't die, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, then it produces a crop 30, 100 times what was sown. That's, that's what the illustration that Jesus gives us teaches. We have to actually let the old who we were person die so that Jesus can raise something new to life. Have you let God do a new thing? Or are you trying to cram him into the old thing? Think in your life, in your heart right now, ask this question. Where have we refused to allow God to bring something new to life because we're clinging to what we're comfortable with? Where might be, where, where might be God saying, hey, I want to do something new, but we're still stuck and holding on to the old? What's that new thing that God might be wanting to do in your life, but, but he, he can't get through to you because you're still clinging to the old thing? Is there something that you need to let go of and let die today so that God can do something new in your life moving forward? And if Jesus were to come and be in our presence, if he already is, but let's, let's assume that he just comes here and stands here in visible form and, and he's offering the same teaching, the same parables, the same illustrations to us. If he were to offer this new thing to us, how would we respond to him today? Would we be like the Pharisees? Would we be like the ones who were so entrenched in their old way of thinking that they actually missed the Messiah? Would we be like them where, where, where Jesus doesn't come in the way we anticipated and expected, and because he didn't come like we anticipated and expected, we miss out altogether because he's not fitting in our God box? Or would we be like Levi? Levi, who's the one that just got called, who's throwing the banquet, who's who's the one who's hosting this feast where all these questions are coming up, would we be like Levi who, who literally left everything behind and he got up from what he left and just followed Jesus? He literally got up and left behind a life 
of luxury, a life of wealth, a life where he had probably been able to acquire many great things for himself and status. And, and Jesus says, follow me. And, and he just gets up and leaves it and follows Jesus. Would we be like the Pharisees or would we be like Levi if Jesus came and asked us to leave the old for something new? See, if God wanted to do something new and it meant leaving the old behind, would you drink the, old, the new wine or would you say the old wine is good enough? If God wanted to do <coughs> something new and that meant leaving behind the old, would you drink the new wine or would you say the old wine is good enough? <coughs> it's kind of like that old run, right? There's this, there's this new idea out there. There's this new way of doing a run that's a little bit more secure. Am I going to go do that or am I just going to stick with this one because this is the one I know? Yeah, it requires ridiculous amounts of work and upkeep and maintenance on my part. But, but, but I know this one. I'm comfortable with this one. This one makes perfect sense to me. I know where the flaws are. I know how it's built. I know how to fix it. And if I have to leave that behind for something new, I don't know about the new. I might not ever really be able to understand the new, but I get this, right? This makes perfect sense. This is, this is how the old covenant and the new covenant worked. The new covenant was leaky. It was broken. It required regular ongoing maintenance. It was a process that had, you had to keep up with all the time. And if you got behind, you had to catch up. And, and it was just this ongoing process. It had, it had brokenness and, and it had faults and that we were human and we couldn't fulfill it perfectly. course, Jesus comes, and because he's the perfect fulfillment of that, he fulfills the covenant that was perfect if we lived it out perfectly, and he fulfills all the commands of it, but then because he fulfilled it, he's able to say, this is something new. If God wanted to do something new and it meant leaving the old behind, would we drink the new wine, or would we say the old wine is good enough? <clears throat> I'm good with where I'm at today. I don't need any more Jesus. In fact, I might have a little bit too much Jesus. I might need to let some go. I'm, I've, got, I've got a good balance right now. I mean, I've got, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got, I've kind of got, you know, all the, all the good stuff from, from the world, and, and then I've got Jesus, and so, so when the world starts making me feel guilty, I go to Jesus, and he makes me feel all good and clean, and I can come back over here and do my thing in the world, and then when it's a little bit too much, when the stresses of this world and the worries of this life become a little bit too much, and I can come over here to Jesus, and Jesus can make me feel all good about myself, and then I can walk away from Jesus, and I can come back over here and do my thing until, until I start feeling burdened down and weighted with it, and I start feeling guilty, and I can, I can come back over here to Jesus, and Jesus makes me clean. And, and then I go back to the old, and I just, I kind of, you know, I kind of got a system down, you know, when, when things aren't working out so good, then I can come to Jesus, and then when they won't work out, I can come to Jesus, and they don't work out, and I can come to Jesus, and they don't work out, and I can come to Jesus, and some of us seem to be stuck in this pattern for many, 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 many years, and we keep getting frustrated at the fact that it just doesn't ever seem to go like we want it to go, but we don't realize the reason it's not going like we want it to go is because we keep going back. And we keep going back, and we keep going back to the old wine because the old wine is good enough, and the old habits and the old routines.
routines and the old patterns are just good enough. And if I just keep going back and I keep coming up to Jesus when I feel bad and I go back and I come back to Jesus and I go back and I come back to Jesus, you know, I just feel fine, right? I, eventually it all balances out. But, but what if in the constant going back and forth between the old and the new, we're missing out on the really, really, really great thing that Jesus has for us in the brand new world that he wants us to have, that if we just really would finally leave all of that behind and follow him for good, wouldn't it change everything? God wants to do something new in all of us. I think this is a continual ongoing position for us as followers of Jesus Christ that we will continually have to make the choice to leave behind the old and pursue the new. And I think that's the point. I think that the point is, will you choose to follow me? See, we can, just, we can make Jesus a religion too and we can create a Jesus religious box and, and we can make that fit exactly what we think Jesus looks like, but that's just the old disguised in the new. Eventually, that's going to burst. God wants us to be in the process of continually, always leaving behind to follow him. Leaving behind to follow him. In fact, Jesus himself is the perfect embodiment of this illustration because he, the sovereign Lord over all creation, the one who existed before the foundations of the earth were laid, existed in the presence of the eternal almighty God as the second member of the Trinity. They were there in perfect community and unity and harmony, and God left all of that behind to establish the new. He left his throne. He left his throne in heaven, seated next to the Father himself. He left all of that behind, and he put on flesh and became clothed in humanity so that he could establish something new. He, he left it all behind to bring the new, and that's why the call for us as his followers is, leave it all behind. I'm doing something new. In fact, it goes all the way back to Peter in the boat. Remember that at the very beginning of this chapter, Peter in the boat and, and, and Jesus and Peter in the boat and, and, uh, and, and Jesus is doing a sermon and then he tells Peter to throw his nets over on the other side and Peter's like, okay, whatever, we did that already, but you know, we'll go do it. And he says, because you say so, I will. Right, because you say so, I will. So he throws the nets over and then they start hauling in the catch, and, and the catch is too much for their boats. So they call over to the other boat, say, hey, get over here. We got too many fish. And, and it's still sinking both of the boats. There's so many fish in the nets. And, and then what happens is that Peter takes, as we talked about with, with the paralytic, he takes the position of submission, just like the paralytic did. And he, he gets down on his hands and knees with his face to the ground, and he says, get behind me, Lord, for I am unclean. 
Remember that? And he goes from calling him master, a position of respect, to Lord. The old covenant, the old law was a master over us. It ruled over us. It dominated us. But, but the new covenant is Lord. It's Savior. It is I am surrendering everything. I am literally leaving it all behind. I am dying to it all because you are my redeemer. Because you say so, I will. So Levi did, right? Jesus said, follow me. Because you say so, I will. He gets up and he leaves. Will we follow in the same way? Let's stand together. Let me bow your heads, close your eyes with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to become one of us, that he literally became flesh. He became human. He the eternal God put on the temporary. The eternal God became a human. He became in the form of a human that would have to die. But he did it so that those of us bound by humanity could put on the righteousness of Christ and receive the gift of eternity, the eternal life with the Father. I thank you for sending your Son. I thank you for Jesus coming and leaving all of that behind so that we could have this new and leave behind the old. I pray, Father, for all of us, no matter where we are right now this morning, whether whether we've just started this walk with you and and we're not sure about all of it, but we know that there's stuff we have to leave behind, or if we've been following you for years, we still know that there's stuff we have to leave behind. I pray, Father, for all of us that, that you would help us to see with your eyes the old and put it in perspective. That this old that has a grip on us and is keeping us confined in an old box and an old habit and an old pattern and an old way of doing things that requires us to go back to it and back to it and back to it and fix it and try to patch it up time and time again. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to see that in light of the newness of life that you have for us. I pray, Father, for all of us, no matter what it is that you brought to mind in our hearts right now here in this moment that we have together this morning, I pray, Father, that you would help us to leave that behind, to turn away from that and to turn towards you And just say, because you say so, I will. I will follow you. Because you called me, I will follow. Because you called me out of my sin, because you saw me in my sin and my current condition, and you called me out of it, because you saw me who I was before you, and you called me out of it, I'm going to follow you. Because you say so, I will. You are my Lord, and I will submit myself to you. That will be my status before you. Surrender. We thank you for this gift. Thank you for the truth of your word. I pray, Father, that you would sink that truth deep down into our hearts, that it might saturate the very essence of our souls, 
that we would find ourselves this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow morning, in the days ahead with the strength, with an unknown strength to turn away from the old and to turn towards the new. We thank you for this gift. We thank you that it's your grace that gives us this gift. We thank you that, that it is you that gives us this gift first, and then out of that gift we express our love and our gratitude by obeying the commands that you've given to us, but that you have done a work in us. We thank you that you have changed our hearts, that you have renewed our hearts, that, that you dwell in our hearts, that you are present with us. The eternal, living, resurrecting, always resurrecting God is dwelling within us, and now that the resurrected, victorious King dwells within us, we now have the ability to dwell with the Most High and walk with the Most High and live in the presence of the Most High. Thank you for that truth. I pray, Father, that you would help us to embrace the grace that you've given to us, to cling tightly to the grace and to hold loosely everything else that we need to leave behind. In Jesus' name, amen.